All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 10th day of March 2020. I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice of America Business Channel. Also, would like to encourage you to send your comments along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions the number for Taylor at gmail.com. And we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Today's sponsors are Ely Gold Royalties, Great Bear Resources, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, uh, Lion One Metals, Novo Resources, and Sitka Gold Corp. I've titled today's show, Two Ways to Profit from the Gold Share Bull Market. When I planned uh, the topic of this show a couple of weeks ago, uh, of course, I was not aware that today we would be in the midst of a financial market meltdown. While the coronavirus is a so-called black swan that many commentators are blaming for the decline in the markets, if you are a regular listener to this show, you know very well that there has been a growing systemic weakness in our financial markets that would render a stock market crash inevitable with or without the coronavirus. The coronavirus has no doubt hastened the day of reckoning uh, that has seen a major decline in equity markets, including the Dow Jones losing a record 2,000 points yesterday. Given the fact that the, that the virus is not the cause, but simply a catalyst for triggering financial market chaos, there is no reason to believe that decline is over yet, despite a bit of a bounce today uh, in the equity markets. I'm looking at the Dow, for example, up 666 points as I speak. While these downturns can be extremely painful, successful investors look at such events as profit opportunities. I've often been asked whether when the next equity bear market arrives, will gold and gold shares get taken down with the market as a whole? From my experience, the answer is that they will be taken down, at least the shares will be taken down initially with all the other shares. The same to a lesser extent of gold, but as the central banks begin massive money printing to keep the financial markets from total destruction, tangible assets begin to rise dramatically, and that is most certainly true of gold, and even more so with the successful gold exploration companies and gold mining shares. Uh, gold itself is performing very well, I, I, I must uh, admit. Uh, in fact, so far in the month of March, the average London PM fix is $1,640. That compares to 1597 for the month of February. As I was preparing for today's show, gold was successfully testing the 1650 level. 
And as Michael Oliver's work reveals, the dollar is now breaking down, which should provide wind at the back of gold, taking the yellow metal upwards towards what Michael sees as the first significant resistance level of 1700. So while there are difficult days like today when gold gives up around 30 bucks at one point anyway, the yellow metal has held up extremely well compared to equities. It has indeed been a safe haven. The topic of today's show suggests two different kinds of gold mining stocks that I believe can lead to very significant profits in the years to come. In just a moment, we will be going to our first commercial break, and when we return, Trey Wasser will be with me to explain how Ely Gold Royalties is building a very significant portfolio of gold production royalties and how that company's shares have been outperforming gold shares in general. And they've weathered this storm better than most, I should uh, should note. In the second half of today's show, Ben Mossman, the president and CEO of Rise Gold, will join me to talk about how that company is moving the famous Idaho, Maryland gold mine located in Grass Valley, California, back into production. Now, this was the second most prolific gold mine in the United States after the famous Homestake mine until it was closed by edict during World War II. The mine is now in the permitting stage, and from what I can see, this high-grade gold deposit has the potential to pick up where it left off in the early 1940s by producing upwards to 100,000 ounces of gold or more, should be very high-margin ounces, I might add, uh, at the historic Idaho, Maryland gold mine. So I'm very optimistic that Idaho, Maryland, uh, that the Idaho, Maryland mine will be highly profitable. Uh, and an investment that should do extremely well for investors who recognize the uh, the potential of this project uh, before the shares begin to rise uh, along with profitable uh, production. We do have to go to a commercial break now, but uh, right after that, Trey Wasser will be with me, uh, followed by Ben Mossman in the second half of today's show. Uh, so um, we will go to break now, and uh, but don't go away because Trey Wasser will be with me right after uh, right after the first commercial break. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Trey Wasser. He's the president and CEO and a director of Ely Gold Royalties. Uh, 
Trey's career includes being president and director of research for Pilot Point Partners that gave him over 33 years of brokerage and venture capital experience, and he has uh, spent 20 years as a corporate finance specialist with Merrill Lynch, Kidder Peabody, and Payne Weber. Trey specialized in equity and debt restructuring and cash management. So with that kind of background, it's not hard to understand that his current role in forming and managing Ely Gold Royalties is a natural fit. And indeed, since his uh, since its inception, that company has richly rewarded shareholders. The shares have risen from around 20 cents or so in Canadian money earlier this year to over a dollar in February uh, before getting trimmed back here uh, with to around 70 cents earlier today when I looked at the market. It was trading around 70 cents in Canadian money. Uh, not so bad compared to many of the other companies that I follow in the junior gold mining space with the uh, carnage that's taken place over the last a few days in the equity markets. Uh, Ely trades uh, in Toronto. ELY is a symbol. You can buy it down here in the States as I have under ELYGF. 113 million shares at 70 cents, giving it a market cap of around uh, Canadian $80 million. While early shareholders have done very well with Ely Gold, the key question for investors who understand the value of investing in gold and silver royalties companies is what kind of growth path might shareholders anticipate uh, going forward with Ely. And so I'm uh, really pleased to have Trey with us to answer that question and more. Thanks for joining me, Trey. Uh, thanks for having me, Jay. Really good to have you, and uh, especially it's, it's good to have someone that hasn't had a total bloodbath in this uh, recent, these recent days, which uh, the gold shares have gotten taken down along with all the rest. In fact, a lot of the more speculative juniors have gotten uh, have been taken down as, as hard or harder than the, than the Dow Jones, I must say. So, Trey, until the last few years, gold shares in general, they have, I mean, I should say the last few days, not a few years, the last few days, gold shares in general have performed very well, but yours have outperformed most other junior companies, and perhaps more importantly, as I just noted, uh, Ely has done relatively well or has fared relatively well uh, in these recent uh, days. How do you account for the good fortunes that Ely has uh, has offered its shareholders compared to most junior uh, share gold companies? Well, Jay, uh, I think there's a few things. As you pointed out, uh, you know, over the last year we've had we've had a, a rising gold price at our back, uh, but uh, it's it, what really has changed for us in the last 12 to 18 months is is two things. Uh, we brought on two uh, high-profile institutional investors in in Rick Rule and uh, Eric Sprott, and uh, and we've also been uh, changed, uh, expanded our business plan to include buying, producing, and near-term producing royalties. And as we've made those acquisitions of of near-term producing royalties and producing royalties, the market has really responded and. Being a junior company, and in that you know, as you pointed out, eighty million dollar market cap, uh, these transactions uh, in royalties that might be producing a million, two million dollars uh, a year in revenue for us, every one of those moves the needle at at our market cap. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Rick Rule. Uh, are there some other notable investors? Uh, Eric Sprott, I mentioned as well, and yeah, Eric, uh-huh. uh, Eric Sprott, uh, and Eric uh, those Earl, are the yeah. two institutional investors that got involved, exactly. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, one of the factors that caused me to uh, to add Ely to my newsletter was the fact that unlike 
some of the other startup realty companies, you seem to have managed to acquire producing properties or properties that are very near production. So you actually have some cash flow early on. I know some of another royalty company that I had covered for a while, you know, looking out two, three, four years before they start to see cash flow. Uh, Can you talk about your business model perhaps and what your criteria are for, uh, for getting involved as a, as a royalty company with these different projects? Well, yes. Uh, historically, uh, Jay, we've been uh, prospectors, uh, primarily in Nevada and Western United States, where we were have been acquiring and staking properties. And and rather than joint venturing those, we uh, a few years ago started with the royalty business model, where we sell those properties and retain royalties. So we have several royalties that are you know more on the exploration and development side. Uh, but those are royalties that uh, we didn't purchase. We actually got paid through the property sales and generated revenue there. Uh, and then, as I said, we've, we've purchased a couple of uh, producing royalties. We just announced a deal uh, to purchase a half a percent net smelter royalty on the producing Jarrett Canyon mine. Uh, that's going to produce about a million and a half a year in revenue. Uh, we also purchased an, a net profit interest on the Rawhide Mine and a NSR on the uh, newly producing uh, just uh, the mine that just went into commercial production uh, by Gold Resource Corp called Isabella Pearl. Uh, mm-hmm. So we've we, we've because of our contacts, we've managed to find these royalties uh, that are you know currently producing revenue. And it's really given us a leg up and the cash flow to then do some deals that uh, that might be producing in a year or two. Um, uh, purchased one on the on the Fenelon property that Walbridge is having incredible success with uh, up in Quebec. That's our one Canadian asset, mm-hmm. and uh, and then a recent purchase that we announced on uh, the producing Marigold Mine. Uh, the deposits that on the claims we purchased will start producing in 2022, and also on the Ren mine, uh, which is a, a large deposit at the Gold Strike complex for Barrick, and we expect uh, that to be producing um, uh, possibly as early as 2022 as well. So we've got a nice pipeline uh, with our producing royalties, a pipeline of things coming on stream and. 2021 and 22, and all of that revenue is then also uh, complemented with our property sales, uh, where we, you know, uh, sell the properties and and also generate a royalty. To sell the properties, uh, what? So, uh, do you have a, a criteria for selling the properties? I mean, how do you know what to sell, when to sell it, and do you do do you do a certain amount of of, of exploration work yourself, or do you leave that totally to others? We leave that totally to others. We are strictly prospectors. Uh, we have a leg up in Nevada with uh, uh, we have uh, Jerry Bachman, who uh, runs our Nevada subsidiary, has been prospecting for over 35 years, uh, staking properties, acquiring properties, selling them, and retaining royalties. Uh, he successfully sold a royalty company. Um, that actually uh, ended up uh, at Frontier uh, and and then Newmont and uh, uh, and now is with the Cisco Royalties 
And we also, one of our directors, Bill Sheriff, has also 35 years out there. So mm-hmm. uh, prospecting, staking properties, retaining royalties, also was successful uh, creating and selling a royalty business. So uh, we've got a, a, a top-notch team with a, a, all of their data over 35 years, and we generate some quality properties. And for that reason, our partners, the the People that we're selling, the companies we're selling these properties to are literally the who's who of uh, operating and exploration companies in Nevada. Yeah, name some of those, if you would. I think you mentioned... Uh, oh, we have, uh, I mentioned Gold Resource Corporation, mm-hmm. McEwen Mining, Premier Gold Mines, Integra, um, uh, Barrick, and, and of course the, the joint venture interest. With the Marigold, uh, that'll add SSR mining. Uh, we have a near-term producing property with Coor. Uh, so we've, uh, um, you know, uh, literally uh, the, the, the who's who, as I say, of, of the producers and majors and mid-tiers uh, operating in, uh, in Nevada and the western United States. Yeah, having good partners is uh, is obviously a, an essential thing, and you certainly do have some premier uh, partners, no doubt about that. Um, can you give us some sense of um, of what you might be looking at in terms of cash flow over the years? I know you can't really; it's a forward looking statement, and you can't really uh, say. But um, you, you'll have some cash flow this year, right? Well. Look, we had uh, we did just under four million dollars in revenue last year, mm-hmm. and keeping in mind that we uh, we operate like a royalty company, and, and one of the essentials of a royalty company is a very low overhead. So, right. uh, Jerry and I are actually the only full to, two full time employees at the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, a office in Reno, and and we share office space in. Uh, in Vancouver for our corporate office, so uh, so our burn rate is is right about five hundred thousand dollars a quarter uh, mm-hmm. on a cash basis. So mm-hmm. um, th- in this year, we're looking uh, on the books right now from our producing royalties and our uh, uh, contracts of our of our property sales. We're starting out the year with about four million uh, in in revenue. Uh, we'll add on to that this. Uh, about a million and a half from the uh, uh, Cherry Canyon royalty. Uh, mm-hmm. And then with our, our normal property sales we do throughout the year, uh, I think we're probably looking at about uh, uh, somewhere in the $6 million revenue this year, uh, growing to 8 to, uh, uh, to 10 next year. And with these new acquisitions, I think we'll be up in the, uh, oh, 12 to 15 million in revenue by uh, 2022. Well, you've got a very low burn rate right now. As you grow, though, it's going to be hard to keep that at 500,000 a quarter, I suppose. <laughs> anyway. Well, you know, not really, because the beauty of both our, of the royalty business is, you know, we don't do any of the exploration, we don't do any of the heavy lifting of the operating. Mm-hmm. Once you have that royalty, it's it's like being a bondholder. You're just basically clipping a coupon, getting a percentage off the top of the sales at at the mine. So, you know, our um, and and that's uh, uh, that just doesn't require a lot of uh, uh, a lot of back office work. 
the uh, and and we also manage our sale portfolio, our properties that are being sold, or, or the same way uh, by doing the royalty model and just selling the properties on a hundred percent basis. We're not involved in any JV meetings or anything like that. Once once we sell the property, all we do is send them an invoice. So it's a it's a really a a, a cash business. Uh, the the what it what takes the time and our energy is for Jerry finding the properties and for Jerry and myself uh, finding uh, these royalties that are that are for sale from third parties. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, royalty companies generally get much higher multiples in the market than say the producers. Um, give us an idea what sort of royalty, sort of multiples that a that a good royalty company, a streaming or royalty company, might get. Well, yeah, that's a it's a, um, a kind of a tiered system. The, sure. You have uh, in and, and now I'm talking about precious metal royalties here, Jay. Right. Uh, you know, yes. when, when we talk about this right. group, and of course with Ely, you know, not only are we focused in Nevada, the number one mining jurisdiction, but we are almost entirely focused on gold. Um, some of the other streaming companies will be, you know, have some silver and and, and some base metals, but generally it it depends on size. So your your three largest royalty companies, the Franco Nevada, uh, Royal Gold, and Wheat and Precious Metals, uh, and now you know I'm quoting some numbers here before this uh, the market pulling yeah. back, but trading it over uh, 25 times cash flow. And um, and uh, really over two two times net asset value, and mm-hmm. uh, and then in the mid tier companies that uh, maybe have more development kind of royalties and uh, and not as big of uh, of a of a portfolio uh, that Sandstorms and and Mavericks and that half a billion to a a billion plus market cap. They drop back a bit. They'll be one and a half uh, times net asset value, and maybe around twenty times uh, cash flow. And then mm-hmm. down in the junior space where we are, uh, you know, of course, uh, we, we it, it, you value those companies a lot more on the blue sky and what that portfolio is going to look like a couple years out, and saying, you know, what, uh, and and that's where you you have to look at us and. You know, apply those apply those multiples to um, uh, to the cash flow that'll be coming in 2021, 2022, uh, and, uh, and 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 a lot of blue sky involved in the in the valuation there. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, at some of your peers in the junior space, Abitibi, Metalla, and and yourselves. Uh, and it looks like you're the only one. Well, I guess Abitibi has one producing. Uh, a producer, uh, Metalla doesn't have any at this point in time, and this was uh, from pretty recent data. Uh, and you have uh, three, so uh, yeah. Metalla has two streams that are producing. So oh, okay, would be fair okay. to them, but yeah, that. Okay. Uh, um, and uh, on the royalty side, I think we're about equal to uh, our currently with this last acquisition we made. I think Metalla has around 45, 46 royalties. Uh, we're up around 42. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and, and Abitibi, I think, has a total of about 28. So, 
you know, on, on a revenue basis, we're about the same. Metalla showed a little bit higher uh, revenue last year, uh, but a chunk of that was one time uh, a, a one time gain. So uh, I think you know we're we're very similar on the mm-hmm. operating, and you know it's it's up to the investor, of course, to look at, at those portfolios and see who's going to look stronger uh, as, as time goes on and projects come online. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think uh, even today with the adjustments in the prices and everything, we're still selling at a fraction, uh, less than half of Metalla's market cap and mm-hmm. and uh, right around half of Abitibi's, I believe. Yeah, yeah. No, it looks uh, looks very favorable, that's, that's for sure. What... Um what should investors really be watching for? Do you have any any news coming down the pike uh, that they should really have their eyes on? And, and as you start to perform, what might be the uh, the share drivers they should be well, focused on? Uh, you know, one. I mean, one share driver for us. I won't come out as news, but of course, we. You just pointed it out. Uh, the comparing us to some of the other our peers in the junior space, we think we still are. Are undervalued there and 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 should be re-rated in the market. Uh, but as far as news flow, I, you, you know we have a lot of it because we're doing we're doing deals all the time, either on the property sales side or the royalty side. So, for instance, this year we had uh, we set out with a goal of buying four producing or near-term producing royalties, which is uh, uh, you know what we purchased last year uh, and. Uh, uh, and as it stands now, in the first two months of the year, we've purchased four. Ah. So we're certainly going we're certainly going to beat that. And uh, you know, we're just going to keep uh, uh, buying these producing royalties, as opposed to uh, you know, where the, the beauty of our model is those longer term exploration development royalties. We don't spend shareholders' money for those. We create mm-hmm. those through our sale portfolio and actually get paid while we're doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so we can, we're able to save all our money for the producing royalties. And, and at this stage, like I said, at, at our market cap, when, when we can go out and buy uh, the quality of royalties like this Wren and Marigold, uh, you know, on, on big producing mines, I mean, I would point out to your listeners that, that uh, the Wren royalty we just purchased uh, operated by the joint venture Barrick and Newmont. Uh, it's right in the middle of their complex at Gold Strike that's produced right. over 50 million ounces. Uh, you know, that just has All right. potential to be a home run All for right. us. All right, Trey, unfortunately, we're out of time. You've got a lot to look forward to. Um, I'm really going to be uh, watching carefully and, and keeping our listeners and my subscribers appraised of what's going on. This is an exciting time, and I think uh, a good time to take a look at your shares, given the, the fact they've been trimmed back a bit with this market turmoil. Thanks so much for being with us, and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime in the future. Well, folks, that is all the time we have uh, for this segment, but don't go away because Ben Mossman, uh, he'll be with us right after the break, the president of Rise Gold. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer, wholly-owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. 
Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete a very active 200,000-meter drill program through to the year 2021. Stay up to date on what has been considered one of the best-performing exploration stocks in the last two years by visiting greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me today Ben Mossman. He is the president and CEO of Rise Gold Corp. I invited Ben on the, on the show today to talk about Rise Gold Corp because I believe it is a, a very undervalued company that is moving what was once the second most prolific gold mine in America back into production. I'm talking about the Idaho, Maryland mine in Nevada County, California, and it was second only to the Great Homestake Mine until it was closed down in World War II. Ben is a very experienced mining engineer who has been very successful in the past with companies like De Beers Canada and Alexco Resources Corp. And so Ben's skills are geared not to mining exploration so much as to actually putting mines into production. And uh, that is totally appropriate given the fact that the main asset that RISE has is the Idaho-Nevada gold mine uh, located at Grass Valley, California. It's already uh, has a very significant high-grade gold deposit uh, that is probably at least as large as uh, all the gold that was mined so far, a couple of million ounces of high-grade gold. And uh, in my view, based on what I know, this is potentially a very profitable gold mining project that is being moved as we speak towards production. Rise is currently selling at around 60 cents in U.S. money. It has only 22 million shares outstanding. This is a minuscule market cap of a little over $13 million. Of the 22 million shares outstanding, fewer than half of that number are in the public float, meaning that it may be very difficult to pick up shares once this story starts to be heard and understood and believed by by mining investors. Believing very much that this company's prospects are very good, I purchase shares uh, personally on the market and have recommended the shares to my uh, subscribers to J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. So I'm very pleased to have Ben Mossman with me. Thanks for joining me today, Ben. Thanks a lot, Jay. It's really good to have you. Uh, you know, I would like to start out by asking you to give us a brief history of the Idaho-Maryland mine. Uh, as I noted, it was uh, in production until World War II. It was one of the more significant, if not uh, perhaps the second most significant gold mine in the United States up until that time. Uh, when was hard rock gold discovered there? And um, you know, how much was produced, and give, give us some idea of the grades that were produced there. Sure. This area here in, in Nevada County was uh, you know, one of the first areas where, where the gold rush started in 1849. So the 49ers came out, they started with the plaster gold, <clears throat> and then in 1851 they found uh, the outcrop of the of the ore body, which was, was called Eureka at the time. And so so they kind of started realizing you know, that the gold was in the quartz as well. And so 1851 they found it. It's been a few years, you know, trying to figure out how to get the gold out of it. And so by uh, 1863, they, they sunk a shaft down into the into the vein, 
and they found uh, the main chute of uh, the ore and uh, was grading, grading uh, 1.3 ounces per ton. So very high grade. And, and, and then that kind of catapulted the, the company back then into becoming the leading gold producer in the United States, you know, way back in uh, 1865. And at one time, it was deep as mine in the entire United States. So, so that vein that they discovered, which, which is now called the One Vein, produced uh, almost a million ounces of gold at over an ounce per ton from one single vein. So just one vein, they mined it until about 1900. The owners at the time uh, were the Coleman brothers, which, which were quite famous in California, especially in that era. So it became very wealthy, and then the vein you know, went off to the next claim, which was the Maryland claim. And so it went from the Eureka claim to the Idaho claim to the Maryland claim, and that's why it's called the Idaho-Maryland mine. So as they as it went on to the next person's claim, they would take over the mining. And so, so they finished the mining of, of that number one vein in about 1900, <clears throat> and then it sat idle for a few years. In the 20s, a group from uh, New York financed the, the water of the mine, so they pumped all the water out, they started looking around, uh, for more ore, and they were within, you know, a couple feet of finding the next vein over, which is, you know, just, just a little offset from one vein, which is called the three vein. And so they actually, that group gave up, uh, and an engineer called Aaron McBoyle, who was involved in the project and put the whole deal together, you know, took over the project, and then right away, um, you know, within a year, cross-cut right into the three vein, which is extremely high grade, it produced uh, over 600,000 on its own. And some of the some of the uh, ore coming out there, you know, was was three ounces per ton, and so that and that vein averaged about 20, 20 grams per ton over its history, and then quickly kind of built up the mine. They built the production. They were up, you know, past a thousand tons per day in, in the uh, in about nineteen forty, producing over one hundred twenty thousand ounces of gold a year. It's the second biggest gold mine in the entire United States, second only to the Homestake mine, which of course is uh, you know a huge, huge deposit that was uh, mined at that time and then mined for a long time after. And so was eventually uh, by the '42, they were they were going through a big expansion phase. So so they were already over 120,000 ounces gold a year. They wanted to double the production to go from a thousand tons a day to 2,000 tons per day, and they put a brand new head frame up. They were sinking a shaft as fast as they could. Um, they got down to 3,200 feet built before it was um, shut down, and they were trying to get it down to 5,000 feet. So, so not only was it, you know, a major mine, but they were also, you know, at the very date where they were going to double the production from there. And so, the total production from the from the history of the mine is uh, 2.4 million ounces of gold at an average head grade of half ounce per ton. So, wow. so that's after mine dilution. That's what was actually fed into the mill. So, extremely high grade. And of, of that uh, 2.4 million ounces, the one vein itself produced 935,000 ounces at uh, 1.1 ounces per ton. So, oh, incredibly rich. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, okay. So, it were was the mine? Uh, let's say back in in 1940 when they reached 120,000 ounces, was it a pretty profitable endeavor? I mean, at that time, I guess the gold price was what? Before 1934, it was about 20 dollars an ounce. In 1934, they increased the price of $35 an ounce. So it was making money at uh, $20 an ounce, but when they raised the price of gold to 35 of course, it was making, you know, a lot more. And um, during the last five years of its production, it was producing at $6 per ton and $18 an ounce. So, so they're selling for $35 and, and, and producing at $18. Okay. And, and the main shareholder, uh, Aaron McBoyle, who, who had something around half the, half the company's stock, 
you know, became extremely wealthy from the mine. He had, uh, you know, racehorses and orchards and, and, you know, private planes and all, and all those things. So, so it had, uh, yeah, it was very profitable. They, they paid back all of their, um, they had all the preferred shareholders. They paid back who financed the capital to, to put the mine back into production. And then of course paid dividends to their, to their common shareholders. But, but I think it's, um, you look at the history, anyone who had invested the mine from, you know, the early 1800s all the way to the end, except for this one group from New York who, who kind of gave up, you know, one round short of the ore body, they all made a profit on their, on their investments. So, so, so. It's, it's, it's been a very profitable endeavor, Ben. And so you mentioned they were, were going to continue mining to depth and actually double the production. What do you know now about the extent of the gold mineralization at depth from where they, the old workings? When we first purchased the property in 2017, the, the family that owned the property had all the historic documents, and they kept all of them in uh, very good condition. So thousands of maps, you know, documents of where they were mining, notes, um, reports. So, so we had a good idea that, you know, they had just, Kind of just they to be forced to shut down by the government. They could just drop the tools and left. And there's there's places there that um, you know they have channel samples uh, in the in in the tunnel where they're mining when they stopped that you know were were over 10 ounces per ton. You know so so we had a good idea that there's a lot of ore left there. And and what and their plan to sink the shaft down to 5,000 feet. Of course that you know they were weren't able to really do core drilling like we're able to do now. They could drill horizontal holes a couple hundred feet. So. They weren't able to drill down deep to see how far it goes, but based on their, you know, on the geology, they expected that it would. So that, that's why they were sinking the shaft to 5,000 feet. And so when we uh, started drilling on the property, we drilled about 18 holes, but deep holes, widely spaced to basically see, like, how far these veins continue to depth. And we had, you know, some, some really excellent results. The deepest hole we had was, you know, over 1,000 meters below the, the, where they had stopped mining. And we hit their uh, 24 grams per ton over four and a half meters. So that was the deepest hole. And then we've had, uh, you know, whole, hits as high as 64 ounces per ton over a foot and a half, um, 13 ounces per ton over, you know, three feet, ounce, ounce over three and a half feet. So, so basically, you know, almost everywhere you drill, and we've drilled over, you know, probably a square mile of area through these widely spaced holes, we've hit, you know, high-grade gold, which is very favorable to to the idea that these veins will continue a long ways down. The big issue that I hear whenever I tell people your story, Ben, is that it's in California and you can't get permitted. You can't mine. The Californian people, environmentally sensitive people, are not interested in uh, in seeing uh, a gold mine being built there. You can take a few minutes, perhaps, to let our listeners know why you think they're wrong. Yeah, so, so this obviously has a big, big question for investors and it kind of starts you know back in back in the 90s when uh, you know gold there's a lot of gold gold in california and so so at that time you know they had just kind of figured out how to do open pit heat bleach mining and so a lot of companies came to california and built open pit heat bleach mines beside you know all these uh, little towns mm-hmm. in the north Sierra, which would you know which which obviously it doesn't uh, make them too popular and so there was there was a big pushback from california state on open pit heat bleach mines and, and forced a lot of mining companies out and a lot of companies just left and never came back. <clears throat> but so, but what we're talking about here is an underground mine. So, so it's a lot less environmental impact. And then in this case, because all the mine, the land was patented, you know, back in, back in the gold rush days, it's all private land. And so because it's private land in California, the land uh, decisions uh, are made by on the county level. And so, so the property is located in Nevada County, California, and the permit that we're applying for is a use permit to reopen the mine 
and the discretionary powers with the county. And so that's that's a big uh, point. Mm-hmm. So you're not, you're not you have to deal with some state agencies for some some secondary permits, mm-hmm. but all the discretionary powers with the county. And so you have to go through the California Environmental Quality Act, which kind of lays out what has to be studied. But if you look through all these issues, which we've prepared all these technical reports and then done our designs on, there's very few uh, impacts. You know, there's, there's no significant impact from noise, you know, dust. Working on the groundwater, we don't think that that's going to be an issue as far as the uh, the, the drawdown of the groundwater table. Mm-hmm. We're doing uh, water treatment so that the water that's coming out that's being discharged from the mine that you're pumping out the mine is clean to a to basically to drinking water or better than drinking water quality. So so there's very few impacts and that's going to really start coming out in the next uh, short while where people are going to see through these technical reports that you know this is going to be just a wonderful project for this area that has uh, no impacts. Basically, you can't hear it. You know, you're not going to be able to see it, and the water's you know perfectly clean. And there's, there's a number of things like that. So so we've we've looked at this for a long time and spent a lot of time thinking about how how it should be designed and built. And so we think that the the political environment here is also very favorable to getting it permitted. And so that that's going to come out over time. And and I think once people um, See that process in action with this permit. That uh, they're gonna they're gonna uh, have a different view for me. Well, ben, how, how much time? I mean, that's always the question. What do you? What I know, it's impossible to predict exactly when uh, when government people will will act and will give you the permission. But can you give our listeners some sense of timing on this? For, for yeah, so we we've, we've uh, submitted the application for the use permit, and this is the main discretionary permit. And so that uh, permit was submitted in November uh, a couple months ago, and then. What right now the county is uh, hiring a third-party consultant, and so so this is kind of one of the advantages over other jurisdictions is that the county it hires the consultant to write the environmental assessment report, and then Rise pays for the cost. So they work the, the consultant works with the county to write the draft report, and basically they take all the reports that our consultants have written on all these different areas, and then they peer review them. And then they write the impact report to go through this big list of questions to say, okay, what is what's the impacts? And then if there is an impact, what's the mitigation? And so, so that that hiring process we expect will be um, completed in uh, in March. And then as soon as they're hired, uh, they'll start working on writing the draft EIR, which could take about four or five months. Once that's written, then it goes to the public comment period. And so that's that's where you're going to really start seeing it more in the public public realm. And so there's a 45-day comment period where, where basically uh, people in the county, uh, other other government agencies can comment on the project. And so once you have all these comments in, the, the consultant, he takes those comments and he has to answer every single one of them. And so comments to be like, well, I just don't like gold mining. Those comments are really easy to answer because that's not due with the environmental effects of the project. So it's comments that you know are technical in nature that um, that take the most time to answer, and uh, those are the questions that are important. And so once those comments are answered, goes to the final environmental uh, impact report, and then that goes to the county uh, planning commission. And then the county supervisors, the county supervisors are five elected officials in the county, and they, they have the final vote on whether it's approved or not. All right. So do you think uh, maybe as we get towards the end of the year, uh, the public might start to see this is a, a very a very uh, environmentally friendly project? Yeah, and that, that's really where it comes out because, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of technical information already yeah. out in the public domain. Um, but, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot to, uh, to read through and, and understand. And so the summary of it in this in this environmental assessment, you know, basically answers questions that people are, you know, worried about, well, what about greenhouse gases? You know, the answer's in there. You know, it's not significant. 
and, and all those different areas. And so, so, you know, there's always a few people that, that are, you know, against growth and things like that. But, but overall, like having been here, I've lived here for over a year and a half, the great majority of people that you meet are, are favorable to the project. And that's before even really understanding, you know, the impacts of the projects, which, which, which we believe are, are very, very few impacts. So I think you're going to see a lot of local support as this thing moves through the, the process. And then, you know, that'll be a stage where, where investors, you know, who aren't here will, will have a better idea of the probability of success and also the timing of success. So, so it's a bit up in the air exactly when it would get approved. You know, we've said basically 12 to 18 months from November. So you could be looking at, you know, in a good case, the end of this year, if it's going to take a bit longer, you're looking, say, like uh, one year from today. Um, that, that's our that's our that's our goal. Okay, Ben. Let me ask you with uh, regard to the economics. Uh, you indicated a bit ago that uh, it was costing six dollars a ton, thirty-five dollars uh, on the top end. So that left a pretty a pretty strong margin. Uh, when I ask you if you expect to do any uh, any um, economic studies anytime soon, a PEA at least, or, or even a bankable feasibility study, if you might do that. And I know it's a forward-looking statement, but do you have a sense of whether or not those same kind of margins better or worse might be uh, possible going forward because those are very very strong margins obviously if you had the same margins today with the you know $1,600 gold you'd be looking at something over a thousand dollars an ounce maybe yeah so yeah the interesting thing about the historic numbers and in inflation is that um, like if you if you they take the, the standard kind of inflation numbers and you probably know more about this than I do but if you take that, uh, you know, that $6 a ton and times it by 18, you end up with about $110 a ton. And so $110 a ton is, is, is kind of, it's in the range of what you would expect based on other operations, um, production rates. So, so the, you know, a mine around a thousand tons per day, you look at some, some comparables, you know, they would be producing from about $100 to up to $230 per ton. And that's, same range, same type of ore body, same grade, and so so the cost per ounce, of course, depends uh, a lot on the grade of the, sure. of the deposit. So so if you're looking at say the hundred to two hundred fifty dollar per ton range, you know you'd have to kind of do your own calculations and and your own speculations on what the actual mine grade is. But yeah. but um, but you know we're looking at a high higher grade mine. That's what our what our goal is is to you know we're looking at this as a, as a higher grade mine. The, of course, the average production would happen ton which have quite a few good drill results but there's not enough drilling there to calculate a resource so we don't have a resource so we don't we can't you know say what the grade is going to be so it takes a bit of um, speculation to to consider that but but that's that's kind of the range you're looking at you know 100 250 dollars per ton and then if you use just straight inflation uh, on the old cost it'd mm-hmm. be about 110 and the interesting thing about yeah the, that that inflation is that if you use that same inflation number on the price of gold from thirty five dollars, yeah. it would be six hundred dollars an ounce, and of course now it's uh, you know trading something like sixteen hundred. Right, so. Exactly. Yeah. So you would think the margins, uh, just back of the envelope here, it looks like the margins could be quite good. And you said the average grades were a half a half a half an ounce a, a ton. I'm I'm wondering, Ben, to what extent you might you might pick up some lower grade material now with with higher uh, gold prices. Although I suppose uh, you don't know that at this point in time. We put out a number of different news releases about drill results, and so there are areas there where where there's you know three veins <clears throat> close together, and then the material in between is also has gold in it. You know, a couple of grams per ton, which 
which most likely would be worthwhile taking the entire block, you know, all three veins to be mined at once mm-hmm. and still sure. come out with a very, very good grade. And so and when we started drilling, you know, we didn't know that if you, we could actually hit this with the high grade material that they had, you know, talked about mining in the past. But, mm-hmm. but surprisingly, you know, we did. We, we hit uh, quite a few holes with visible gold. And of course, you know, the highest one was at 64 ounces per ton. But so it's, it's uh, quite, quite incredible really that you can hit something like that from such a far distance on surface. So, yeah. so there's a lot of potential. Like, you know, I think once you won't really know the true answer to that once until you get underground and mm-hmm. uh, start, start mining some of these different veins, but, but you are going to find, you know, these stuff, these areas where you have this extremely high grade and, and it could be that, you know, you blend that in with some lower grade, you mm-hmm. mine some of the lower grade as, as, as uh, water width. And so a lot of those kind of uh, questions yeah. as far as grade is, or what you would mine or what's yeah. economic or, or what is the best strategy to mine won't, won't be known until. Right, until you get underground. All right, Ben. So I'm wondering, will you be doing any formal economic studies anytime soon or might you just get down there and start mining and then um, continue to mine going forward as you as you go and as you do the work down, uh, underneath the ground uh, you can start to understand better uh, the prospects yeah it could be done either way and we haven't we haven't decided which way um, is best and we probably won't know that until we get further into this permitting process and, and a lot of it depends on the market as well and so so you basically have two two strategies <clears throat> two basic strategies you know one is that you get the permit and then you drill out, um, drill more holes from surface to prepare a resource. And then with, when you have to have that resource in place, then you prepare, you know, a, either a PEA study or a feasibility study, depending on the level or the detail of the drilling. And so that, that's the conventional way to do it. And that, that can be done. We've had a lot of success from our drilling from surface. So we feel confident that it could be drilled from surface. And the other, the other way is that, you know, once you get that, uh, use permit in place, you, you, you kind of immediately go and start dewatering the mine. And so <clears throat> you got to pump, pump all the water out of the mine, which would take about six months to get all that water out. You know, you get back underground. And then, of course, now you're drilling <clears throat> right beside the vein. So the drilling, uh, the drill holes are, are a lot shorter. You can actually, you know, go and touch the touch the veins because they're right in the right in the existing tunnel. So, so you get to you get you get more more work done for your money, and of course you're that much closer to to production because you know the the mine is already dewatered and you're down there. So, so there's a few there's advantages to each, and and that all kind of depend on where we're at once this permit um, gets in place. And, and basically our, our strategy right now is because we think that you know the company is is very undervalued. We think that by getting this permit, that's going to to result in a major, you know, re-rating the value of the stock because <clears throat> that seems to be the most concern. We don't we don't often hear people questioning, you know, the quality of the of of the property from a gold point of view. People's most concerns is to do with can it be permitted? Right, so exactly. That's, well, that's the first thing to resolve, and then after that, you know, there's a few different uh, ways ways to uh, advance property that uh, we haven't really committed to either at this point. Ben, uh, just with a couple of minutes left here, yet uh, recently I was talking to a major shareholder of Rise, and he noted that prior to the 1970. Um, for example, around 19 in the 1940s, 90 percent of the uh, of the cash flow for the Idaho Maryland mines was paid out to the shareholders. But um, I'm wondering, you know, and there was some thought that possibly, uh, given the legal structure in the United States for, for resource projects, that a master limited partnership might be a possibility, whereby a, a large percentage of the uh, cash flow is actually paid out to the owners of the company. Of course, in that way, uh, allowing 
to avoid the double taxation that is uh, the bane of, of American corporations to a great extent. But is is there some thought that that might be a route that the company takes in the future? Yeah, I mean, we've uh, looked at it uh, into a few different advantages of different structures. And, and so one of the one of the unique things about Rise is that it's a U.S. company, and so which is unusual because, you know, most, most companies – they start out uh, as Canadian companies, of course, and so so Rise is a U.S. company, and it's a you know SEC reporting issuer, which opens up a few different avenues. And so, um, and so you have you have the yeah the the master limited partnership, which, which we're looking into, and then there's also another um, kind of new new uh, tax benefit that's being set up called an opportunity zone, and so they uh, they've laid out different areas of you know where have higher unemployment, higher poverty, and the mm-hmm. mine actually sits in one of these opportunity zones, which there's some tax benefits to that, which which requires some structuring to to make it work. But but that's something we're looking to as well. And and so and the and the main thing is that you know Rise is focusing 100% on Idaho, Maryland. We have no plans to you know acquire some property up in Manitoba or something. You know this, this is our focus. I think a lot of investors you know are quite you know tired of you know they have success on one on a project and then the company you know goes and buys you know some other projects so that the money is always invested to growth mm-hmm. rather than being um, paid back to the investors and so that's uh, yeah that's that's our model and that's what we want uh this to become and so those the structure of that you know something that has to be thought about over over time but i think that by the time we get to these permits we should have a pretty good idea of what which direction most favorable structure for the for the investors. Wonderful. Well, just one more sure. thing. Uh, we're just about out of time here, Ben. But I mentioned that you have only 22 million shares outstanding. Can, can you can you give us an idea of how many of those shares might be in the float? Because it's my my belief that this is a very tight share structure. Obviously, with just 22 million shares. But if a large percentage of those are even owned by a handful of people, then that means there's not a lot of stock out there for people to uh, to to buy. Yeah. So the largest two shareholders, which is Imana Gold and Southern Art, they uh, they own 25% of the of the stock, and so we don't expect that they um, they would sell it anytime soon. Of course, they're they able to sell whenever they want, but but they've invested for strategic reasons. You know, Imana is a bit different than Southern Art. Imana is, of course, interested in uh, gold projects because they're they're a large gold producing company, and then <clears throat> Southern Art is is more uh, is more like a like a typical. Uh, investor looking for a return on their investment uh, and, and, their, and their holdings, and then so so 25% is with those two shareholders, and then we have uh, quite a few um, shareholders that that we have you know strong relationships with that we would talk to you know once a week or something. So so I would think that was probably over another 25%. So you might have you know somewhat less than half the half the stock you know kind of in in available for trading or, or that people might trade. So it has traded pretty good. It does have you know pretty good volumes for a small company. The the price isn't isn't that high, but uh, it does have you know uh, decent liquidity for the size of the company. And uh, so it's possible at this stage to buy stock. And uh, I think though that uh, my view is that when when people start to realize that this hey this is a real project, a real mine, uh, a very potentially very robust economic story, that people are likely to get much more interested in it than they have been at this time when they're still sort of figuring ah. Eh, Nothing's going to happen there. It's in California, so, um, so yeah, it's been a bit quiet lately. You know, it's because you know it's a bit it's a bit boring to just to, to file uh, reports. Yeah, but uh, I don't think it's uh, like I don't think it's just going to wait until until the final approval. I think as these things progress, I mean, there is going to be uh, news flow as far as you know the results of these technical reports, the uh, you know public comment periods, and as things kind of move through the process, I think people will 
you know, the people that spend the time to actually, you know, watch it and read through these different uh, reports and, and come to their own conclusions on the probability of success and the timing, I think you'll start seeing, uh, you know, more people, um, you know, buying the stock. And, and, the, and the other thing is that we have uh, <clears throat> we raised a fair bit of money this summer, so we have all the, all the uh, funds in place so that we don't have to finance until that permit uh, is completed. So we won't be issuing stock from the Treasury. So if, if investors want to buy a uh, position in the company, they would buy on the market. On the market. All right. Well, very good, Ben. This is a very exciting story, I, but I see the potential here of something that I think could be, could be very significant for investors who recognize what you're doing there. Ben, I want to thank you so much for the time that you've spent with us, and we'll look forward to keeping up with the story as this year progresses. Thank you so much. Great. Uh, thanks a lot, Jay. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Lion One Metals, one of 2019's top performing gold stocks, is geared for aggressive growth in 2020. With drilling underway at its fully permitted high-grade Tuvatu Gold Project in Fiji, one of the last high-grade gold deposits of its kind anywhere in the world, not owned by a major gold mining company, Lion One trades in the USA on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF and in Canada under LIO on the TSXV. To learn more about Lion One's world-class high-grade gold potential in Fiji, go to liononemetals.com.